Now, when thinking about AI, user experience doesn't usually come to mind first, but you'd be surprised to know how integrated AI is in, a, in everyday tech that you use already. Now, in this episode, we'll dive deep into this topic of the UX and different flavor of the UX that plays in building AI products. Now, my guest today is Simon O'Regan. Simon is the Global Head of Monetization Integrity at TikTok. He was previously a director of product innovation at MasterCard, where he focused on the use of AI in the future of commerce and payments. Now, before that, he was head of product at Zalando for data and AI platforms. He's been thinking deeply about AI for over 10 years and has got a PhD in machine learning. Hey, I'm your host, Cyrus Shirazian, and welcome to PM Hub Podcast a show dedicated to bringing you fresh and unique insights from product leaders and tech entrepreneurs. All right, Simon, welcome to PM Hub. Thanks, Iris. Great, great to be here. For sure. Now, today's topic is actually very, very interesting. Uh, UX for AI products. Uh, there's there's going to be a lot of good discussions here to chat about with you. But, you know, uh, as you know, we all have different journeys in the product. I'm curious to know how you end up first, I guess, your journey into AI itself and data and also how that transitioned into product. If, you, if you're open to share with us, I'd love to hear that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I was actually thinking about this recently. Um, I think it all goes back to to television show that I saw um, back when I was an undergrad, right? So I saw this um, show on BBC in the UK um, called Horizon. And in it, it showed, um, it showed a monkey moving a, a mechanical arm. Uh, using only its thoughts um so that to me was was just kind of blew my mind to be perfectly honest and kind of opened opened the idea of working in neuroscience and, and neuroengineering let's say um and there happened to be be one of the lectures at the university that i was attending university college cork um liam marnan who who was leading a research group in let's say neural engineering and specifically looking at brain signals uh, and seeing if we could use, you know, signal processing and machine learning um, to detect if if children and, and babies were were experiencing seizures. So combining the two, I kind of thought, okay, I wanted to be in this area, and I kind of drifted in uh, that way, let's say. Um, and then, you know, signed up to to a PhD with with Liam, um, working on on brain signals of, of children and young babies, applying machine learning algorithms there. Um, and when I finished up that piece, you know, I moved into industry as a as a data scientist and machine learning engineer. And what I found is when I got into industry that, you know, machine learning and AI, let's say, was beginning to to, to really take off. Um, AI was being being incorporated into more and more products and more and more product types. Um, so I found myself in a lot of conversations on the product side uh, and pretty quickly transitioned then into the, the product management side there and kind of you know took it from there essentially okay now it's very, very interesting actually the first uh product person i'm getting to chat with uh, data science background so i'm curious like you know as a data scientist and the product manager let's say we, for, for data products like how how's 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 the interactions like you know what, what got you that you want to actually become a product manager for ai products from, compared to being a data scientist i'm curious yeah, sure. So um, I guess there was kind of a couple of reasons. <clears throat> At a very high level, you know, I was keen to apply AI and data science, let's say, to, to interesting problems. But I was beginning to see that, you know, 
maybe we weren't necessarily always tackling those, let's say, the right problems in the first place, or or even perhaps tackling them in the right way. It was also pretty clear that you know how you would apply data science and AI to to let's say software products in general, and maybe even the software development lifecycle was a little bit different than how you would do that with with traditional software products. So that was one piece, just a kind of a necessity, let's say. <clears throat> the other piece then, I guess, was just, just a pure interest in, in product management once I found out what that was. Um, so certainly when I entered industry, I actually didn't know what, what a product manager was as such. And I kind of, once I kind of seen across the fence to that part of the organization, it kind of clicked that, look, that may be something that I wanted to work in uh, that kind of really appealed to me, I guess. And, and I think that that kind of suited my, my background as well, particularly given the fact that I was interested in the the general problem space and not just, let's say, honing in on on the algorithm itself or, or data preparation. Yeah, I love that. No, I love that. Now, you know, talking about the topic itself, Simon, you know, first off, like what is UX when we're talking in the context of building AI and data products and why does it matter to, you know, talk about it and kind of consider it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so really, what we're talking about is the experience that a user has with uh, while interacting with a product that use, uses AI or uses artificial intelligence. Um, and really, you know, what that means is the experience of interacting with a product that's built with computer software that that learns and adapts um, without the help of an explicit um, programming from a human. Let's say um, why that's important, I guess, is that you know today's internet products, in particular. The vast majority of them at least have some some AI built in. Um, more and more um, hardware products also are, are beginning to turn into that direction. Um, and the experience of interacting with, with AI products can be fundamentally different uh, than with traditional software products. On top of that, you know how we would go about designing those products can change quite a bit or, or can be a little bit different than, than traditional software products. Um, so really understanding that, that UX of AI piece can lead us to to design better products from a product management point of view, uh, and hopefully lead us to to better product out- outcomes where we're building the right thing, let's say, um, and actually s- solving for, for for a case where where the user has a need. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Now, now I'm curious, like how, how does you know UX for AI and data products change? You know, let's say one angle is like the type of product. I'm curious, like, does it change? And if so, how does that change? Or like, what are some other angles to even look at, the, I guess, the UX for AI products? I'm curious from your experience. Yeah, sure. So so really the top thing from, from my point of view is it varies very much depending on um, the interaction type or like the mode of AI. So you can, like AI is a very broad field. <clears throat> it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. There's different groups of groups of let's say AI use cases. So you've got computer vision, uh, you've got natural language processing, natural language understanding, uh, you've got let's say traditional product recommendations typically have some some AI built in, uh, and you've kind of got predictive analytics, uh, and that's only kind of naming a few of them. Um, but there are themes that 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 um that are true across each of those areas. Let's say um, in particular, you know what is the user expecting in terms of that interaction with AI? Do they know that that it is an AI product? And you know, does that change their expectations of what's going to actually happen um, when they interact with it? Um, from the product perspective, a key, key kind of thing to consider is 
what performance is required from from an AI algorithm to actually deliver on the use case that that you've set out uh, to deliver upon. And we can talk about that a little bit later because you know it, it's quite um, nuanced, let's say. And then you know another call out I, I would kind of point to is is error modes. So we know that that all software breaks, um, but I would say that AI software tends to break uh, maybe a little bit more often than normal software, um, or at least in in more unusual ways. Uh, and that's definitely something to to call out. Okay. Uh, the, sorry, go ahead, Cyrus. Yeah, you go ahead. Keep going. Sorry. Yeah. So like maybe kind of talking through each of those elements for for different types of products. Uh, a couple of call-outs I would have would be for consumer products, um, for example. So if you look at, let's say, you know, TikTok's For You page, which is kind of the central page uh, on TikTok, but it's heavily, heavily influenced by machine learning, uh, or Google Search or Amazon Alexa or Spotify Discover Weekly. Um, those tend to have fairly in, kind of intuitive interaction modes. Um, users typically kind of know what to expect from those. They're they're used to interacting with with those those consumer products, um, and then from a performance perspective, those products are built on you know huge volumes of data, which in turn impact the actual quality of of the algorithm that that's underpinning um, the product itself. Um, so in those scenarios, let's say we're kind of good on on the first two, and then when we look at a kind of error modes, we're usually talking about use cases that um, if they do go wrong, it's kind of, it's not catastrophic. So it's, we're not talking about medical scenarios. So in the case of my PhD, it was exceptionally important to be sure that we were, we were confident that a seizure was taking place or that it wasn't taking place. Uh, and, you know, designing the subsequent steps from a product point of view really took that into account. You know, if you give a bad root music recommendation, yeah, it's a bad user experience, but you know, but it's not life life or death either at the same time, you know? Yeah. Um to talk about let's say other product types where where AI can 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 take um you know there are interesting aspects to it. If we look at let's say internal tools, um you know, user expectations there will be quite different than we would expect from a consumer product point of view. Um you know, the user themselves may actually be surprised if you if you inject AI into that product. Um, right. They may be surprised that it's there, and therefore, you know, how they interact with it may actually differ substantially. Um, and then, you know, on something like a B2B product, for example, that can be a mixed bag. I guess, I guess more recently, we're seeing more B2B products with, with AI um, injected into them. Um, there are a couple of things to kind of point out there. Um, you know, uh, the interaction patterns for the most part are quite heavily influenced by by consumer products, with a couple of exceptions. You know, data dashboards and visualizations tend to kind of have their own thing. But again, the user there, you would expect them to be fairly familiar with with how those work, and and kind of layering AI on top of it can can be reasonably intuitive. Yeah. No, that's really good the distinctions you did there. Now I'm curious, like when we're talking about, uh, you know, uh, how it, does it change now? When you when you talk when you talk about like you know this your overall strategy of the for the UX the user experience part of building AI products, how do you approach it, uh, Simon? Yeah, yeah, sure. So so I can I can go into a little bit of detail here, but I guess um, 
it's always worth kind of taking a step back, right? So um, I would say, you know, the first steps that we need to think about are, you know, is this a problem worth solving, right? So, so just standard product question, um, but that tends to get overlooked uh, quite a bit, particularly with the hype around AI. You know, do we have have a problem here that that's worth solving in the first place? Um, and in particular, let's assume that we do. You know, what's the context uh, of the of the users when they have that actual that pain point or need? Both of those two points, in my own experience at least, can be glossed over when we talk about AI products, and it's really important that we start with those and make sure that we've got those those rock solid before we do anything else um beyond that you know um thinking about let's say the the problem definition itself you know is ai an appropriate tool for this task um it's just kind of a a general general call out but again can be glossed over when people just assume that if we add intelligence to this product it's going to be better that may not always be the case mm. um then maybe kind of moving on a little bit further into let's say the the design life scale or life cycle um like at the design stage you know what will those interactions look like uh, you know what type of ai are we using um you know can we test test our assumptions of how the ai will appear in the product um it's not just a case of let's say having a widget in an app and just saying ai goes into that box um will users react well to that you know how will they how will they react to to those error modes that that we mentioned earlier for example um and then maybe jumping ahead further let's say we we launch in some sense um you know how are we designing for 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 the future right so ai products need to be trained on data um but that data can kind of let's say go out of date uh, for want of a better term the models tend to to degrade and the performance of the algorithm goes down with it, that can create a, a fairly jaunting user experience. So how are we designing that into the product itself to make sure that we're still still delivering the performance there over time and that you know, trust, for example, or user trust uh, doesn't degrade over time. Um, so those, those are just kind of a, a few key call outs, I guess, in, in the, the product development lifecycle. Yeah, this is very interesting, especially, I guess, in terms of like the, the data quality itself, like you mentioned, and the user trust, like, uh, let's say the past year, I'm curious, like, you know, like, this has been a very, uh, you know, an, a very unique situation. We've been like in a pandemic mode and the data I've been getting, let's say for your uh, for the work kind of work that you're doing, I'm curious to know how has that affected, you know, that data, data you'd be getting the, the AI models you had, because I'm I'm assuming that the behaviors change quite a bit of, of the consumers and customers. So I'm curious if if, uh, if 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 you have some examples in that kind of like uh, how how the transition of the different kind of data you'll be getting, and also how do you going to go about actually making you future proof that model? Let's in the future things are not going to hopefully run the same. We're going to all be working from home. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that, Simon. Yeah, that's a that's a great question, actually. Um, so there's a kind of a couple of, of aspects to that, right? So, so one, <clears throat> I would guess like teams that are, are kind of continuously iterating their models and continuously deploying them should be reasonably okay. Now I'm guessing there's particular use cases or, or particular, in, particular industries that are may, maybe more affected than others. Um, but like the key point here is that 
we shouldn't be training an algorithm, setting it out into the wild and kind of forgetting about it. We should be kind of revisiting that that continuously. And provided that the changes aren't happening so quickly within that time window, the model itself or the product itself should perform at a reasonable level. Um, I mean, I can I can give one example from my own, like from my personal life, let's say, of using a product. Um, so we 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 had a, so our son was born, let's say, eighteen months ago, um, and I I'm a, a big user of Spotify, and Spotify obviously has kind of shot to prominence uh, a couple of years back, really on the back of doing really good product recommendations, um, and their Discover Weekly, um, let's say, product within the product is kind of one of the pieces that could be held up as like just a really good example of 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 a data product. Um, our consumer data product full stop let's say um so i've come to rely pretty heavily on on the music recommendations there you know to keep me keep me up to date with the music scene and kind of giving me give me fresh music um our son came along about about 18 months ago uh, and all of a sudden you know i'm playing a lot of white noise um on spotify a lot of kind of baby lullabies trying to get him to sleep trying to get myself to sleep that just completely destroyed um that particular algorithm it kind of to the point that I actually had to had to um had to abandon the Discover Weekly product full stop because it was just giving me n- lullabies and nursery rhymes and white noise recommendations like consistently for for about a, the past year. Yeah. Um, but I think that that's a really good example where, from a data science perspective, that probably not been taken into account that I may not be that interested in in a continuous feed of of um of lullabies and and white noise. Uh, but from a user perspective, it's a, it's effectively rendered that that product unusable unus- for me uh, as a result of the change in background. Yeah, yeah, that's that's very interesting. So, I mean, it, it, if if you were like let's say working as a uh, uh, PM on that Spotify team, for us, first off, the situations like this would happen. The habits of the user change. It's like, how could you address those? Do you think you know that that you know you could still would that be totally irrelevant for users who have like a you know periodic changes in their habits in what they're listening or like uh, do you think there's a way that like, you can actually future proof that let's say in a way that can actually adjust the model to what it recommends? An example of the Spotify. Yeah, that's a great question. So so there's a couple of things there that you know I think are really important from a UX of AI perspective right so so on the one hand you know i'm coming at it coming at it as a user looking for product recommendations okay um but i'm also kind of trying to second guess the algorithm a little bit um on the one hand so we have to bear in mind that that actually happens with ai products that maybe doesn't happen quite so much with other product types and it's a type of user behavior that we kind of need to design for that they may be anticipating various things with the algorithm right um, so, so that's one piece. The other piece that I think works particularly well or can work particularly well with, with AI products is giving the user some insight as to why the, pro- why the product is recommending certain songs in the first place. So kind of saying, okay, you listen to this song, therefore we're giving you this, okay? We don't necessarily change the output of, of an algorithm or, or you know, uh, the recommendation algorithm there but at least it kind of reassures me that it, this isn't just random stuff that they're giving me. They've explained that there's there's thought gone into it, even if it if it is by an AI, let's say, or uh, by an algorithm. Um, so that that's one piece. Uh, another piece then would, or to take a step further, 
would be to give users more control over that. Um, mm. So the feature that I would have loved, um, actually, you could do it one of two ways. One would be to say, look, I'm now in baby minding mode. Do not do not take any of what I'm about to play into account for my my Discover Weekly. And I think a lot of users kind of feel feel that way. You probably see it in Netflix as well, where, you know, um, in my case, where I share an account with, with my wife and all of a sudden, you know, our our recommendations get blended and I'm getting getting a recommended load of romantic comedies that I don't particularly want to see. Um, I'd love, you know, the ability to separate that kind of in profile. Um, yeah. Netflix obviously do it at the profile level, but you'd like to have it kind of within within the user flow itself. Um, so that that's kind of one piece. Another piece could be, you know, on the product recommendation side, if I now see that I'm getting all of these recommendations that I don't particularly want, you know, is there a way to reset that? Just bring me back to the beginning. Um, that I think would be an improvement um, from a product perspective. Instead, with Spotify, what you're actually left with, and I've noticed this over time, I needed to personally kind of train that algorithm a little bit more by explicitly not listening to, to lullabies anymore or to white noise um, and, you know, liking a load of new music. And then slowly over time, I see the model kind of coming back to where, where it should be. Um, and that's, let's say, not a great user experience, if we're honest about it, uh, and definitely room for, for, you know, product managers to take into account when, when they're designing products like that. Like what you hear so far, make sure to never miss an episode by clicking on the subscribe button now. This podcast has been made possible by listeners like yourself, and I'm thankful for your support. Now, let's head back to the show. Yeah, that's very tangible. Thank you. And great, great uh, insights into that. Makes makes perfect sense. And uh, I love that ability for the user to actually being able to be in charge as well, uh, like, like the one in Netflix example you mentioned. Uh, cool. So, I mean, if you're talking, there's a lot of challenges we're facing, uh, but like what specific ones comes on top of mind for you when, when you're about to, you know, address user experience for AI products, Simon? Yeah, sure. So I, I kind of will put this into two, two buckets. One's like the very high level piece. So let's say we're looking at building out a range of AI products or we're looking to put AI into, into one of the products that we currently have. There's, there's kind of high level organizational challenges that, that go with that and that I've seen now across across a number of companies that, that I've worked with. Um, you know, what I'm about to say kind of typically applies for maybe not the major tech companies, but maybe the, the smaller set below that or maybe non-traditional tech who, who now want to use, use AI. Um, but one is, I guess, there's a huge... There, there's a large knowledge gap uh, and perhaps cultural gap between people of a UX background and people of, of a machine learning background. It's not universally true, but it, you know, it, it tends to be, tends to be fairly true. Um, UX designers unlikely to have a strong background in machine learning or statistics and machine learning practitioners, you know, typically unlikely to be, to be experts at, at UX. And that can lead to challenges kind of further down the line and even in how we design those products and how we set up the teams in the first place, or even what products we begin to develop um, from the beginning. Uh, the second thing I would say is that, you know, this whole concept of AI products kind of comes with its own biases from an organizational perspective. Um, some are organizations, you know, 
love the idea they want AI infused in everything. It's, you know, it's the next best thing. And just everything has to have an AI angle to it. Um, I mean, that sounds great if you're if you're working in AI product management, but but I can assure you there's definitely downsides to that. Um, and then maybe the flip side of that is a lot of companies have maybe dipped their toe into the water <clears throat> of AI products over the last five years or so. Um, and, you know, maybe they're more reluctant to kind of to, to build out an AI product there or they see it as having a lot, you know, a lot of investment required or, you know, they don't have a necessarily a, a strong plan to kind of get to that point where AI is sustainably improving the product and actually, you know, leading to to, to better product outcomes for everybody, including the business. Um, and then the final challenge, I would say, again, from an organizational perspective is, do you know? Do you have a team that is shipping that product? Um, that ha- let's say that, that has the independence to ship that product, or is it one of these products that's now going to rely on a long chain of stakeholders and dependencies? Um, again, look, we know that it's easier to to ship products with a with a smaller team in general, um, but AI products, at least in my experience, have you know, do require a large number of stakeholders, right from like people at the data warehouse side, all the way, you know, up to the to the front end. And that in and of itself comes comes with quite a few challenges. Um, maybe kind of getting down into the, the nitty gritty and the weeds a, a little bit more. Um, and we touched on these a little bit, but there is a challenge around user expectation. Your typical user may not be familiar with AI full stop and they may not be expecting it within this particular use case, okay? I'm expecting it in Spotify uh, to have product recommendations. I'm expecting it on Amazon, but you know, am I expecting it on that that internal tool um, that I'm using at work? You know, maybe not. Am I expecting it, you know, am I expecting my uh, fridge um, or washing machine to have voice controls in it? Um, yeah, okay, maybe if I bought it myself, but, but if I'm out and about, you know, again, probably not. Um, then there is, of course, and this this tends to be the one that's focused the most, is just that technical feasibility question. AI is hard. Machine learning is hard. Uh, it's particularly hard for new use cases. Um, and that tends to be the biggest kind of underlying challenge, um, but by no means kind of unique. Um, and then kind of related to that org question is, you know, where are we drawing the boundaries from a product management perspective? It sounds trivial, but it really can impact what it is that we design from from a UX point of view. Um, do we have control of the front end fully, for example? Um, do we do we have all the data that we need? Um, yeah, I mean, there's a there's a whole host of questions there. We could actually go into that that uh, in detail because it tends to tends to raise a lot of headaches, I guess, for for product managers. Yeah, of course. The one I'm curious and uh, uh, kind of in the interest interest of the time is you mentioned the one on the organizational side and expectation management of like what AI can achieve and like you know you said it's the investment timeline of, of you know because you need a lot of data especially if you don't have them and you need to get those data first before you know build into the model and kind of train it I'm curious to know how do you go about tackling the one how have you gone and what do you think is the best approach in tackling those scenarios uh, to kind of like align the stakeholders yeah yeah so this this tends to be um yeah it is a tricky one to be to be frank what i've found that works well um is is to align on that 
product vision. Um, in particular, if that product vision has, um, if the benefits that we're realizing from this particular AI product actually spread to, to adjacent products as well, or at least if the investment that's required up front for our AI product can help adjacent products also. Um, so that, that's the first piece. Then to kind of take take a couple of steps back, um, what what I found works well in my own past, let's say, is shipping that value on the way to AI. And in particular, you know, that could mean releasing value that we're getting as a result of the development work we're doing that actually might have very little to do with, with AI full stop. So a typical AI product will need, you know, good clean data on which to train the algorithms. But having that good clean data may actually improve other products that we currently have where, I don't know, we're, we're presenting that data to the user directly, for example. If we have fewer errors there, we're more confident in it, that can improve the product on the way there. Perhaps we're kind of building a data dashboard on top of that or giving insights. Can we give those insights directly to the user now that we're confident that we've got cleaner data? And then can we move to a point where where we're exposing an AI product directly to the user. Um, that's great. And then when we're setting up the data, let's say the feedback cycles in terms of users um, interacting with the product in some sense, is that going to benefit not just our product, but adjacent products? Um, creating that picture and kind of really being clear about what value we're, we're releasing as we get to that point, um, I found at least works works particularly well. Yeah, the great, great uh, insights. Thanks for sharing those. Really awesome. Uh, now, in terms of like you know the you the target user itself, because we want to let's say segment and and specific uh, persona per se. Like, how, and from a UX perspective, how how do you go about defining this target user and kind of mapping their journey when you build this AI and data product, Simon? Yeah, absolutely. So so maybe let's go back to the the point we made earlier, right? So like the target user definitely needs to be defined. Um, by by the product aims, right? I mean, it it shouldn't be any different, at least at the very, very beginning. We've got a problem that needs to be solved. And those those are our users, let's say. Now there are some AI unique elements um, to thinking through the users and in particular thinking through the use cases. Um, and it's worth maybe just double clicking in on that and giving it giving a few examples, right? So um if we think about voice, right? So I've done quite quite a bit of voice in my last job with uh, with Mastercard, and we were thinking through like, okay, you know, how can we how can we bring bottom of the pyramid um, individuals into kind of financial industry full stop and kind of get get them out of a you know a cycle of poverty um, when there are certain barriers to entry for those users. One of those barriers would be, um, let's say, an lack of familiarity with technology, let's say, uh, or it could just be plain plain illiteracy on, on the one hand. Voice really is a, is a great opportunity there um, to bring those users kind of into the digital world without requiring them to, to upskill um, in terms of technical uh, or technological literacy. Um, that's a pretty unique user group from, from a product management perspective or a typical product management perspective, let's say. Um, but it's important to note that they'll likely have very different mental models about how technology works than you know your traditional 
upper middle class Western user who has an Alexa at home, for example. Um, and I can give give some kind of tangible examples there. Um, sure. Those those users, uh, and actually, somewhat ironically, my, my mother would fit into this. Where you know, if she's interacting with voice, she has a doesn't have it that much of a strong mental model of you know using app flows and these types of things. So she she just speaks to it as if it's a if it's a person, and she obviously does a little bit of hedging, knowing that it's not a person. Um, but that's her her mental model of how to interact with voice. What we found. You know, when we were doing kind of product testing with um, with users who, let's say, use smartphones a lot, um, but who maybe weren't familiar with with a Google Assistant or with a, an Amazon Alexa or something something like that, is they're expecting that voice journey to mirror the journey that they would see in an app. Okay, we also found this that was the case with ourselves. We were biased towards asking questions within that voice flow that would logically flow in the app equivalent. Um, and that's a huge difference in, in user assumptions. And it's a huge difference in you know, how we would go about designing that, that AI product in the first place. Um, jumping to maybe like another use case uh, around content recommendation, going back to the Spotify piece, you know, if you if you were to talk to the random, a random person on the street and ask them, you know, how does content recommendation work? on Netflix, on Spotify, on TikTok, what have you. They likely couldn't couldn't tell you. They have certain assumptions that would be quite different than maybe a, a product manager um, at a tech company, for example, or certainly a product manager working in in AI. Um, so it's really important to kind of take that into account when when we're designing those products. Um, yeah, maybe maybe I'll I'll pause there and you know, if you have any other questions on that, happy to happy to go into it. Yeah, no, this was great. Really, really made it uh, uh, very tangible to understand what we're talking about in terms of like, you know, how you drill down target persona, how you put yourself in their shoes. Now, a question related to that, like what kind of research methods, you know, are there any specific ones you use for, let's say, AI products? I'm curious because there's a ton of them out there. I'm curious to know uh, if you've used uh, any of those that uh, are kind of like worthy of mentioning that, uh, you know, uh, you'd recommend yeah yeah definitely and so, some of them work better with ai products than others i should say um so maybe just a few key call outs for based on where in the product life cycle uh, that we are so like look the discovery phase obviously we're going to want to be doing user interviews um there first in terms of identifying pain points and really figuring out does ai have any part to play in in a potential solution um that i mean look that can lead to internal awkward questions, let's say, when we find out that users maybe don't have that need for, for AI, but it's definitely better to do that at the beginning and figure out, should AI be mentioned in this this product? Or look, that's just not something that, that we want to uh, want to address as, as a company or, or, or a product team. Um, I would say, obviously, look, getting out of the, the office and speaking with people who actually use the product uh, or use AI products in general um, is a key one. What we just spoke about in terms of voice, there is something that look maybe we could have guessed that, but we didn't see, we didn't expect it in in in, in a, for it to be so explicit. Let's say um, between those those different user groups, mm-hmm. uh, and we really did save ourselves a lot of pain by by actually getting out and and talking through through those 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 product needs. Um, 
with them. Uh, the stake stakeholder interviews then, let's say going back into the company is obviously hugely important. We mentioned that there's a huge organizational uh, overhead with AI products typically. Um, those dependencies tend to be huge um, and they also tend to be fairly long-term. So if we're talking about an AI product, you know, it's unlikely that we're going to ship that in the next couple of weeks. We're talking about building something, you know, over multiple quarters, um, at least in most companies. Um, so really understanding, you know, how we can add value to adjacent products um, as we get to that, that final deliverable um, is vital. And in particular, making sure that those those, those other product teams are, are on board with, with our own product vision that, you know, has a ton of AI infused into it, let's say. Um, moving on to like the discovery phase, competitive analysis is, is important. What we found is uh, across multiple teams that I've worked on actually is asking users to use, let's say competitor products or products that have a kind of a version of what we're trying to build um, and seeing how they interact with those is actually really, really, really useful. Um, an example I would give there is, you know, at Zalando, um, where I worked at a, a couple of years ago, one of Europe's bigger, uh, biggest fashion e-commerce uh, player, let's say, Tech Unicorn. Um, and we wanted to really kind of expand the, the area of product recommendations and how we were going to show those to users. Um, and we took a lot of inspiration from Spotify's Discover Weekly, actually, and, you know, had users walk through that experience and figure out, you know, how we could apply that to fashion and what were their intuitions as they they did interact with that product, which gave us an awful lot of user learnings that we could then take take back and, and incorporate into our own product. Um, then maybe moving on to prototyping. So look, Wizard of Oz um, scenarios is probably the one that gets gets a lot of uh, attention, particularly with with AI products, where you have somebody you know um, pretend to be to be a an intelligent or somewhat intelligent um, AI, right? Uh, interacting with the user. Um, but also, you know, having high fidelity prototypes is useful there, particularly if we can narrow down the use case. Um, and then look, I would say user tech or let's say technical proofs of concept tend to be overlooked on the UX side. So mm -hmm. engineering teams um, tend to push them just to see, look, are we sure we can do something here? Um, but from a user experience perspective, they're also vital, um, largely because the quality of the of the of the model or, or the algorithm, let's say, highly impacts the experience of the user. It's not just a case that um, you know a model that's a little bit worse than another one um, is a little bit worse from a user experience perspective. There can be some distinct changes between uh, the experience in one case versus another. Uh, and the other thing I would say is the types of errors that do occur really do impact the, the user experience. Yeah. And then That's... maybe, <clears throat> sorry, sorry, go ahead, Cyrus. No, no, you go ahead. Sorry, I, I saw you pausing. Go ahead. Yeah, no, no, sorry. I was just coming up for air. Um, the, um, the, the final thing I would say is like that post-launch piece, um, user testing is, is vital. Um, and it's a thing that I guess, you know, gets, I won't say neglected, but it's probably under, undervalued, not just directly post-launch, but looking at that over time and making sure that those, those AI models or machine learning models aren't degrading because that can really impact um, 
that user experience. And, and I do think that it's something that, you know, putting in that extra bit of due diligence can make a huge difference from, from a product perspective. Yeah. No, you, you call out a lot of, a lot of good, good points uh, throughout the kind of product life cycle. Thanks. Thanks for sharing those, Simon. Now, I guess I have, I have, I'm, I'm pretty much done my questions. Uh, have a fun question for you. You know, uh, what are your thoughts on, we have this AGI, you know, artificial super, uh, super intelligence that we call it, uh, you know, when the, 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 the robots, you know, intelligence actually exceeds humans, right? Um, like, what are your thoughts on that and robots taking over, you know, the, the world, like, like in the movies? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is the question that comes up a lot, right? Um, you know, parties and that kind of thing. Um, I have a couple of things that maybe maybe a little bit on the serious side, let's say. So the one thing is I would separate between AI and robotics. So AI tends to be the decision making in general, and robotics is kind of how that's kind of um, how that is implemented in the real world, and kind of it's you know it's kind of a, a physical. Uh, embodiment that AI can embed and they are different things um, and I guess those are different futures a future that just has you know very powerful AI but that isn't embodied in a robot versus you know the killer robot scenario that everybody's afraid of um, they're they're somewhat different and I think worth separating um, on a like maybe more serious note I would say like I do actually think that AGI is worth researching as a kind of maybe like a low probability event that if it were to happen would have serious implications for for everybody involved. Um, but at the same time, I think it takes away from from a lot of the benefits that AI can and I expect will give us over the next 20 or 30 years. Um, it tends to kind of inject a bit of uncertainty into the conversation and, you know, should we do this or not? Uh, and really, I think that, um, you know, the impacts that we'll see as, let's say, from a societal perspective, will be more likely to be seen through automation or, um, you know, the who has access to to AI products in general. I think that the killer robot piece is something, at least I don't don't worry about it too much uh, for now, at least. Okay. Thank, thank you for sharing your thoughts. That's very valid points. Now, uh, Simon, where can our listeners follow your insights? Yeah, sure. So I, I write at simonoregan.com, uh, occasionally post um, those those articles or short thoughts on, on Medium. Um, last year, I ran a newsletter called The Deployment Age on, on Substack. I've not touched it this year yet, but but may may come back to it. Uh, and then you look, you can follow me on, on Twitter. It's Simon underscore O underscore Regan. Um, and then look, I'm building up a fairly sizable product uh, and product and process team. I, monetization integrity at TikTok. So if you're interested in that or you want to learn more about but you know working on product at TikTok, you know, please hit me up on, on Twitter or LinkedIn. Um it'd be great to, to hear from you. Awesome. Hundred percent I'll I'll be sure to add the links in the descriptions for, for our listeners. Simon, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about UX for AI products. Cyrus, thank you very much. Look, really enjoyed it. Um thor- thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, and look thanks thanks for what you're doing here. It's um, really great stuff. And look, it's the kind of resource that I would love to have had access to those years ago when I was breaking into product management and, you know, really seeing behind the curtain of, you know, what, what product managers do in, in various different industries. That's it for this week's episode of PM Hub Podcast, guys. Thanks for tuning in. Um, if you enjoyed it, definitely share on your social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, you name it. Leave a five-star review so we can reach more audience. 
And if you have any suggestions, I'm totally open to it. You can reach out to me on social media. Uh, also subscribe to uh, make sure you never miss any of the upcoming episodes. I'm Cyrus Shirazian. And until next show, stay safe and healthy.